Welcome to the HR on the Offensive podcast, brought to you by Lace Partners. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the latest HR on the Offensive podcast. It's me, Chris Howard, back again for another Thursday roundup of our fantabulous podcast, and we have a returning guest with us today. We had this person on over a year ago to chew the fat, and it was fantastic. And I said at the time, we'll definitely have you back on. And it is Nelson Sivalingam, who is from How Now. He's the CEO of How Now. Nelson, back on. How are you doing? I see him in. I wasn't too bad last time if you're having me back on, Chris. So, yeah, I'm feeling great. Yeah, it was really, really good. And of course, as always with these things, and much like the podcast that we did last time, I needed my partner in crime with me. So, Emma Leonis is joining us. How are you, Ems? I am really good. Thank you, Chris. Yes. On a scale of one to 27, how are you? 27. Interesting. 30. I'm going to round it up. There you go. Been a good day. Oh, okay. Like <laughs> it. I like it. You've taken my scaling and ignored it. Thank you yes. very much. <laughs> right. Let's talk because let's talk to Nelson because Nelson, you've written a book. I have, Chris. We are interested to talk to you about this. The book's called Learning at Speed, How to Upskill and Reskill Your Workforce at Pace to Drive Business Performance, published by the guys at Kogan Page. And what we'll do is in the show notes, we'll put a link to where you can get more information about it if you're listening into this. But before we actually talk about the book, I was just thinking, actually, we should probably, for those listeners that maybe didn't hear the first podcast that we did, if you can just tell us a little bit about yourself and then tell us a little bit about how now as well, if that's all right. Yeah, sure. So I guess a little bit about myself. I've probably spent the last 15 years in entrepreneurship. So running and building predominantly tech startup across different spaces. So hospitality, we did advertising and now in L&D. That's where How Now comes. And How Now is essentially a learning experience platform that organizations all the way from your fast growing companies like Checkout, Depop, Gymshark, all the way up to your global enterprises like Sanofi, Investec, Telenor, use it to onboard, upskill, and, and essentially enable their people. Fantastic. What an amazing list of clients there. And I guess just the breadth of how applicable, as you say now, so sort of the learning technology that you provide at How Now is, but also learning in general clearly is part of every organization's mandate and probably more now so than ever, given the lifetime of skills being sort of two to three years, some of the research sets. So really curious as to what made you decide to write this book and a book in particular. Yeah, I asked myself this question. I mean, I was asking this every time I had my publisher chasing me for the deadline and going, why did I ever sign up to this? And like every rookie first time author, they said, you've got six months to write it. I turned around and said, I don't need six. I'll get it done in three. Six months on, I hadn't really done much. I must have extended the deadline multiple times before I got it done. But where it essentially the spark came from is my background isn't L&D. And so when we first started How Now and started working with L&D teams and L&D professionals, we were essentially borrowing from other experience we've had from different domains and disciplines, predominantly being startups, entrepreneurship, agile, lean startup. These are really the things that the mental models and frameworks that we were used to using. And looking at some of the problems that L&D professionals were facing, what I started to essentially do to help them solve their their problem was to borrow and adapt these mental models and frameworks for the L&D challenges they were facing. And the feedback was great. 
we started seeing people using a lot of the things that we had used for entrepreneurship, starting to see value and impact. And one of the kind of overwhelming feedback we got was they were familiar with concepts like agile and lean, but often what was available was a lot of academic literature around what underpins and what the principles are of agile, lean and frameworks as such. But they didn't really have practical guidance on implementing this in a very easy way. So over time, we started developing resources ourselves, which essentially informed what learning at speed was. So we had bits and pieces that were starting to work and get generate really good feedback. While in lockdown, I thought, you know, this is probably a good time to see if we can put this into a book that's easy, really written for our customers, but could be used by anyone who's essentially looking to apply lean and agile principles to how they approach L&D in their organization. And, and that's really what drove writing this book. Love that. I love the kind of practical aspect in particular. And the book, without kind of giving all the secret nuggets away, is in three parts, isn't it? You've got kind of part one on your marks, part two, get set, and then part three, go get cracking I guess and in the short time we have on the pod we'll try and give some sneak peeks into each of those kind of three sort of sections together so maybe starting with kind of part one and on your mark this is around where LD is going wrong how lean can fix it so can you maybe just give a few nuggets as to some of the insights from that just to whet the appetite Nelson yeah so I guess it's starting with the idea of well, there's got to be a problem in the first place to solve right and so it is really kind of laying out the groundwork for what is the problem and is there evidence to show there is a problem? And there is a lot of evidence out there. And I thought one of the striking stats that I found in the research was in 2020, for example, there was over 360 billion spent on workplace learning and training. And yet the statistics for how ineffective it was was shocking. So you had, you know, I think only 12% of the workforce reported using any of the skills that they got from workplace L&D. Nearly 70% wouldn't recommend their internal L&D function. And so what you realize from that is there's a lot of resources, time and money going into L&D but not a lot of value and impact that's coming out of it, which means there's a lot of waste. And so that screens a huge problem, right? When we're spending, I think it's more than 160 countries worth of GDP is being spent on training. Yet what was happening was year after year, L&D professionals were making the mistake of thinking the problem was content. And so they would put more money into basically buying or creating quote unquote, interactive and fun content, hoping that will solve the problem, but it wasn't. And so it's really looking at why year after year, we're we making the same mistake and what exactly is going wrong. And really trying to understand what kind of learning cultures exist. And what we realized was there are essentially three core categories, you know, one being your compliance-driven learning cultures. And this is where if you work in an organization where the only time you ever hear from L&D is when they're chasing you for a deadline for a compliance training and you never hear from them any other time, that's probably because you've got a compliance-driven learning culture. Now, if you're an organization with a compliance-driven learning culture, I would be very, very worried because you are falling significantly behind in a world that's changing at an exponential rate. And so they're the ones where there's no incremental change. You have to stop and do some radical things to change your learning culture. The next one is more a process-driven learning culture. So this is where you learn things that equip 
people to run your processes, right? We do onboarding, maybe how to use the tools that you have in the organization, but it's still very much driven top down and driven by the business and driven by the L&D function. Now, the risk here is there is no room for self-directed learning, and it's very much around processes and it's still dictated by L&D function. And then the third type of culture, which is moving more towards a progressive learning culture, is a skills-driven learning culture. And this is where you're now aligning learning to closing skills gaps, which is a great place to be. But the risk you have is the skills that you need to develop are still being dictated by the business. And so it's still very top down. And you tend to have where people feel like if they get these skills, it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Say, for example, I go on a leadership course, they assume it's a self-fulfilling prophecy where they've now got leadership skills and will use that as a way of signaling for career progression. And when they don't get that promotion, then they stop essentially investing time in learning because it wasn't a positive feedback loop for them. And so what we're kind of setting the scene for is really learning needs to be aligned to performance. And so how do you build a performance-driven learning culture? And if you haven't got one, that's where we're going wrong. And that's where lean learning can really help you move. So the on your mark is really about assessing where are you today as an organization? Why is that not working? and how lean learning can really kind of help you get there and what's the kind of initial mindset shift you need to start moving towards lean learning. It's really interesting. And I like that you were just talking about those three cultures, those performance cultures, the compliance driven, the process driven, the skills driven, based on the types of companies that you come across, not necessarily your clients, but I guess just when you look out into the marketplace, how often do you see the process driven cultures or the skills driven cultures? I mean, do you tend to come across mostly, is it an even split you tend to see of those businesses or do you see some more prevalent than others? Yeah, it's an interesting one because I think we definitely appeal and work better with organizations who are the skills-driven learning culture. If they're already at a performance-driven learning culture, then that's even better. But we typically tend to work with organizations that are process-driven and evolving to skills-driven. However, we tend to meet and often find we're not a great fit for people who are compliance-driven and have no aspiration to move beyond compliance-driven learning culture because they don't see learning and development as a strategic driver. And often in those organizations, there's no doubt that L&D have no seat at the executive table. I mean, if you're in a compliance-driven learning culture and you're wondering as an L&D person whether you have a seat at the table, I can make that very easy for you. You don't, right? Because... Often what you find in those organizations is compliance is used as a way of L&D to demonstrate their value for existing within the organization. It's, look, I'm keeping people compliant. And if I wasn't doing this, you would have a lawsuit. And therefore, you need me doing my job. But we need the conversation, the narrative to go far beyond that. We're going to build a culture where we're learning at speed. And so unfortunately, I think a vast majority, I would say, are still in the compliance-driven and process-driven learning cultures. And really, we're at a stage where the early adopters right now are your skills-driven and performance-driven learning organizations. So I just want to ask another question before I end up monopolizing it and not letting Emma have any time on the podcast. But I just wrote down something as you were talking about that first section. And it's a question that we've asked in some of the research that we've done for shared services and also for on our original white paper on a HR on the offensive. Do you think that L&D functions and L&D teams need to get better at improving their own internal brand? I know we're slightly deviating off topic from the book itself, but just as you were talking about the perception of the L&D function and how within some businesses, it is that 
compliant side of it and they're not going to have that voice at the top table it just triggered that kind of question in my head do a lot of them need to work on their internal brand within the business almost absolutely chris and i think later in the book there's a chapter dedicated towards how lnd can leverage some of the marketing tactics that have successfully been used by direct to consumer businesses and one of those is effectively building a learning brand and that's not just building a brand for the sake of building a brand i think the important thing to understand is people will learn with or without LD. Now, that doesn't mean if you're an LD, you now look for an alternative career. I think what you need to realize is actually the pressure is on LD to do more than ever before because there's so much content out there and so little time that LD plays a critical role in connecting people with relevant learning in those moments that matter, right? And a big part of that is creating a brand where you're able to create the awareness around problems that exist. And that's important because if employees are not aware of the business challenges, they don't understand the why and don't have the motivation for engaging with LMD in the first place, right? If everything is going well, why do I need to learn this, right? So it starts with, as an LD brand, making you aware of the business challenges, then making you aware of the solutions that are available. Right now, for example, the chances are you've spent time and money creating these incredible learning experiences and resources, but your people are probably going to Google when they have that need. And every time they search on Google, your internal resources you spent time and money don't come up. So if they're unaware of the solutions, they're also not engaging. And uh, how now we talk about this as the engagement gap. Engagement is the primary requirement for any learning to take place. Now, it's important to realize not the only requirement, but it's the primary requirement. Because if people don't engage, everything else that follows, performance improvement, behavior change, meaningful impact, all of that great stuff doesn't happen without engagement taking place. And that's where most L&D teams are failing, is that engagement gap. That stops them from reaching their... L&D success. And one aspect of that is what you just alluded to, Chris, is building that L&D brand, which is talking about the problems and solutions that I as an employee is interested in and aligned to what I'm trying to achieve. And that goes a big way of closing that engagement gap. Fantastic. Thank you, Nelson. And that's a really nice segue, actually, to some of the themes that you start to explore in part two, sort of the, the get set, kind of get ready, kind of get set piece. So in that particular sort of set of chapters, you talk about finding the right business problems to solve, which you've just sort of alluded to there in what you were saying, concept of learning canvas, the dynamic learning ecosystem, personalizing and learning at scale, and then sort of the six influences of moments that matter. And again, you briefly touched on, on moments that matter in that piece there with Chris's question. So maybe if you could just bring to life perhaps the learning canvas, this concept and maybe one or two of those influences of the moments that matter for our listeners. Yeah, one of the kind of significant differences here is often what I see L&D teams do is start with personas, right? They start with the internal customer. But actually, I think where we should be starting is with the problem, right? In the book, I talk about loving the problem rather than loving the solution. We're very solution first in L&D. We rush to get those courses out, to get those training programs out. And it's very much about the outputs we create. Rather, actually where we need to start is making sure we define the business challenge we're solving right. Because that is what motivates the business to give you the budget. That's what motivates employees to invest their time and energy. So if you don't get the problem right, everything else that follows doesn't work, right? So once you've defined the problem, 
you use that to build out your learning and development strategy. Now, this is where the canvas comes in. And the whole idea of the canvas is, I'm a big fan of first principle thinking, which is the idea of essentially boiling down problems, big, scary problems, boiling them down into the most fundamental truths that you already know, which helps you essentially strip out any assumptions, constraints, and really go back to what you know. And one of the best stories to kind of illustrate first principle thinking, and it's a story I talk about in the book, is about Elon Musk when he was starting out SpaceX. He was looking to buy a rocket. He found out that rockets were expensive, even for a billionaire, north of 60 million. And he asked around and everyone told him, well, yeah, rockets are always going to be expensive. There's nothing we can do about it. So Elon Musk, who's a big fan of first principle thinking too, decided he would break down what is a rocket made out of and why is it so bloody expensive? And when he broke it down, he found out it was made out of copper, titanium. I won't list every material that goes into a rocket. But then he essentially found those materials on the commodities market, bought the raw materials, built his rocket for one cent the price. That's first principle thinking in action. So he was able to do something others said that wasn't possible by boiling it down to the most fundamental truths. Now, I recommend approaching your learning and development strategy in the same way. And when you do that, you break down your strategy into those fundamental building blocks. And there's nine that I talk about. Let me see if I can remember all nine of them. But the kind of first three blocks contribute to the why. You know, why does this learning and development strategy exist? And that's a combination of what's the problem you're trying to solve, the customer, who are you trying to solve this problem for? And then the value proposition. So what is the end benefit of solving this problem for the customer? And that value proposition is what motivates the business and the employees to get involved. So that's those three blocks give you your why. The second three blocks are your how, right? How are you going to solve this problem? That's made up of solution. And the important thing to point out about solution is solution is not your courses or training programs. Solution is what are the skills, knowledge, and mindset that someone needs to be able to solve this problem, right? They manifest themselves as courses, training programs, resources, but those courses are not your solution. Then we come to your partner and stakeholders. So who are the stakeholders and partners who can help you deliver that solution to the internal customer? And the last one is your key resources. This is where we talk about your courses, your learning resources, your learning platform, the tools. What are the things that are going to help you deliver this solution to your customer? So they're the next three blocks. The final three blocks are your what. What do I measure to know whether this is working or not? And so the final three blocks are your key metrics. So your key metrics are your leading indicators that people are engaging with your learning experience. So these are your views your enrollments, your likes, your comments, your shares, the people who have completed the assessments. Now, often L&D teams stop there, right? They stop with the views and completion rate, but that's not a measure of impact. That's just a measure of engagement, right? So then we move to the second block in that, which is outcome. So outcome is how you measure whether you delivered your value proposition or not, right? So if my value proposition is to improve sales efficiency, my outcome might be measuring the movement in sales conversion rate, right? So I can start with a baseline metric, say that baseline metric is 30%. And I want to increase it to 40%. And that's the metric I'm measuring. And the last block is your cost block, right? What is the cost for you to be able to deliver this L&D strategy? And quite simply, minusing the outcome block from the cost block gives you your ROI, right? Your return on investment. So the learning canvas is a single page canvas that brings together these nine fundamental building blocks of your L&D strategy. And it helps you put first principle thinking into practice for building an L&D strategy. Now, once you have your canvas, 
you want to turn your strategy into a learning experience. And that's built up of four things that you alluded to at the beginning, which is your learning ecosystem. So if I asked you guys, let's play this out. If you think about when was the last time you learned something that had a big impact on your performance or career? Now, let me know if that happened inside an LMS. No. Right. Yep. Right. I've asked this question multiple times in a room full of L&D professionals who are all buying an LMS and none of them ever put their hand up. Now, a blog, mm-hmm. podcast, yep. Yeah. Yeah. from your colleague, right? Webinars, books, yep. all of these different things don't exist within your LMS. So what we learn from that is your learning ecosystem is far bigger than what exists within your LMS. And so in the book, I cover all of the different types of learning that are readily available in your learning ecosystem and how you can bring this together. And then the second part of that is how do you connect the right learning with the right people? And this is where I go into how often push learning gets a really bad rep. But actually, I don't think it's binary. It's not push or pull learning. It's a blend of both and talking about how you can leverage data and curation to be able to essentially do push and pull learning better and the third aspect of it is how do you connect right learning with the right people in the moments that matter and this is where we talk about the influences moments that matter are essentially in that moment if you connect someone with relevant learning it shapes their performance right and there are two types of moments that matter you've got micro moments that matter so imagine i'm on a call with a prospective customer They asked me a question about the product. And if you could connect me with the relevant answer to that question in that moment that matters, I'm able to deliver a better customer experience, right? So that's a micro moment that matters. A macro moment that matters is if I've just been promoted as a new manager and I'm now about to have my first one-to-one, that's a macro moment because I'm a new manager in my career. There's no point telling me how to do a one-to-one 12 months before I'm about to have one, but Now that I've been promoted, it's useful to do that. So you look at the factors that shape those moments that matter. There's different type of influences, like, for example, the physical environment. So say, for example, if I'm in a noisy place, it makes no sense to have audio learning resources. You might want to use visuals. Alternatively, if I'm in a dark place, no point giving me video content. You might be better off giving me audio content. Right. And so there are multiple different influences like that that you can take into account to kind of shape those learning experiences to fit those moments that matter. And the final part of it is measuring the impact of those learning experiences. So the whole structure of that mid part is how do you create your L&D strategy? Then how do you convert that strategy into a learning experience that's more tangible? I think that's absolutely fantastic. And the way that you described that with the nine pieces, the why, the how, the what as well, I think that was a really, really good reflection point for me personally, starting to break that one down. And then the two sections of the moments of the matter that you mentioned, we are reaching the 20 sort of five minute mark of the 30 minute podcast. And I do want to get to part three. So I'm going to shuffle us along a little bit to that sort of final section, that part three section, where obviously you're talking about the learning challenge fit and why it's important to iterate and test initiatives before rolling them out. Can you give us a bit of an overview on that section so that we can impart some more wonderful knowledge onto our listeners, please. Yeah, sure. So I guess once you've got your strategy, your learning experiences are essentially how your strategy manifests itself in a way that's tangible and that the learners can engage with. Now, what you've got to remember is your learning experience and your strategy is still a hypothesis. You don't know whether that's actually going to solve the problem or not. And you don't know whether it's going to improve performance in a measurable way. Much like, and I make this parallel all throughout the book, is I see L&D almost like a startup where this is their product. And, and much like how a startup, you wouldn't scale and start throwing money at marketing and trying to get customers to your product without knowing whether your product actually delivers value or not. And this is where the kind of age old 
lean approach of minimum viable product comes from is you start small, you test it out, you gather data, you see if it's working, and then you iterate or pivot. And you iterate and pivot until you reach something called product market fit. And product market fit in startup speak is when you've created a product that your market wants, and you can feel this because they're buying it as fast as you can build the product. And only after you reach product market fit, do you recommend that you scale your startup? You scale the reach and the go-to-market of your product. Much the same, often what happens in L&D is we scale our L&D efforts even before we know whether it's working or not. So if you're scaling something that didn't work in the first place, you're just scaling an amplifying amount of waste in the first place. So what I recommend is test until you reach the point of learning challenge fit. And learning challenge fit is when the learning experience you're offering is showing early signs that it's solving the business challenge you had in mind. So if my business challenge was to increase the sales conversion rate, if I can start to see my learning experiences starting to move the needle with the metric that matters in that right direction, I've now got early data that shows learning challenge fit, and I can now start to scale it to more people. To scale something before it reaches learning challenge fit is too much of a risk. And no L&D functional organization today can afford to be investing resources and wasting it, especially at a time where we're going now for with economic downturns and budgets being cut. We need to make sure we're thinking big, but starting small. And iterating and pivoting on that. And so that's where learning challenge fit comes. The learning challenge fit becomes that kind of holy grail for don't scale until you reach learning challenge fit. And once you reach the learning challenge fit and you've got the metric that shows you that this learning experience and strategy is working, early signs, that's when you double down on what's working. Until then, you kill what's not working. Wow. So many amazing insights, Nelson, in the brief sort of 27, 28 minutes just on the book there. So this might be a really hard question to ask you, but I'm going to ask you anyway. If there's only one thing that you could tell anybody listening and hopefully anybody then reading your book, if only you did X, what would that one thing be? And you can't say buy the book. (laughs) I didn't even think of that one, Chris. You can say I'm new to marketing the book. No, I'd definitely say start with the problem, right? Because I think this is a very common mistake I see. It's to start to think about outcomes versus output, because often we're measured, we kind of rush to create outputs to kind of prove value. My manager is coming to go, what have you done? It's easier to say, look, I've been doing a lot of work because I've created 60 courses, right? But if you said, actually, I've just spent the last month trying to define and gather data to validate the problem before I start testing out, you almost feel like, well, I've just been wasting time and it doesn't feel like I've done any real work. And that mindset needs to shift from outputs to outcomes. And to do that, you need to make sure you define the problem well, align the business around the problem. The problem is what matters. So if there's one thing to start with and take away is fall in love with the problem, not the solution, and really spend time because that's what matters. You know, That's what matters to L&D. That's what gets you out of bed. It's solving real meaningful problems in the organization. That's why the business gives you budget is because they want you to solve real meaningful problems. And that's why an employee is going to give you their time is because they want that problem solved. And so if there's one thing to be to start with the problem. That is absolutely fantastic and a fantastic way for us to wrap up today's podcast. Of course, Nelson would say, now you can buy my book and get all of the details. I'm going to say it for him. We will put a link, as I said, in the show notes itself to the book itself and where you can get access to it. Nelson, it's been an absolute honour and a privilege to have you on again, sir. Thank you very much. 
Thank you very much for having me. And Ems, partner in crime, as always, lovely to have you by my side, firing the questions. Ditto. Thanks, Chris. You can, of course, get this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hopefully you have enjoyed this particular edition. We love producing these. Any ideas that you have or that you'd like to share with us with regards to podcasts you'd like to see, reach out to us because we are open to be talking all things HR, all things people. And hopefully you've enjoyed this podcast as much as I have. On behalf of myself, Nelson and Emma, thank you very much for listening. And we will see you next time on the HR on the Offensive Podcast. Bye. Bye.